Why don't we pray together? Uh, Father God, as we today have heard your word said and spoken, as we come to think through what it means for us and for the way we think about life and the world around us, we ask that this morning you might help us to see with clarity what matters in life, to see the wisdom from your word and how relevant it is, and to come away seeing how important your son Jesus is. We pray this in his great name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you understood that reading as we went through, as Michael read it. Uh, as I kind of first came along to this passage today, there was a sense in which I'm like, well, what is this talking about? Well, what is a caper berry anyway? And why do we care about the blossoms on trees and um, the kind of the silver chain and the gold bowl? What's, what's going on? Uh, it's kind of like an odd bit of literature that we come across that it makes you kind of stand back and go, what, what is what is this? What's happening here? Is this just another one of those things of those Christians who think that, you know, there's something relevant to say, but really when you look at it, there's nothing relevant to say at all. What I want to put to you this morning is actually that the Bible is phenomenally relevant. And as we look at this kind of painted picture uh, coming near the end of Ecclesiastes, we've got one more week uh, next week as we sum the whole book up. Um, but this week as we come and we'll hear kind of the answer to, to life's problems, we see it as like a, a picture on a wall, a, a painted poetry to see what matters in life. And it's my hope that you um, come through this in the way that I have to see the clarity that is here about life. Because there's one thing that I love about the Bible. It's full of honesty. It's full of honesty. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. So often Christianity is portrayed to the world around us as a way of thinking that's just wishful thinking. These Christians think that there's something going on and so they like to believe there's a God so that they can live better about life. But Ecclesiastes holds out a very different view from wishful thinking and sentimentality. It takes a long, hard look at the world and at life and helps us to think through what matters. What we see here is a profound comment, I guess, on who we are and where we are headed in life. If you've been with us through our journey throughout Ecclesiastes, you would have felt the the pages of this 3,000-year-old piece of literature were nothing like sentimentality and wishful thinking. They're raw, they're honest, and they call out life for what it actually is. In the end, it's actually unsatisfying. Listen to the opening lines of the book of Ecclesiastes. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a man gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? And throughout the next 12 chapters, that the writer of Ecclesiastes takes a good hard look at life to say, if this is all there is, if this is it, if this is life, then how do I make sense of it all? How do I get the fullness out of life? And what his conclusion is, as he looks at all sorts of different areas, is that life is meaningless. We, we try to achieve all sorts of things, wealth, achievement, money, relationships, and each of those get robbed by someone else or emptied by death. Their significance is not there. What can you say at the end of your life that you've achieved? You're just as dead as the person who achieved nothing next to you. Life is meaningless. I know that's not the kind of happiest thing you want to hear on a Sunday. Like, whoa, these Christians, they're a happy, happy bunch, aren't they? Come along to church and you're like, oh, life sucks. But honesty and happiness don't necessarily go hand in hand in life, do they? 
Honesty and happiness don't necessarily go hand in hand. I'll give you an example. Just this week, um, Sarah asked me as I was kind of getting dressed, she's like, do you think your shirts have shrunk? Now, you know what she's really saying, don't you? Do you think you've put on weight? Like, that, that's what's going on there when you said, do you think your shirts have shrunk? Um, and so I ask, I go straight away, I call out what it is. Are you saying I'm fat? Happiness and honesty don't necessarily go hand in hand, do they? And there are times when we hear the honest opinion and it's not necessarily the thing that makes us the most happy in life. There's nothing worse, I think, than the person who comes along, though, and is always honest. Have you ever met that? There's some people who are just so linear that everything just has to be nailed down exactly every single way. And I'm not just picking on the engineers amongst us, although you know who you are, right? There's this sense in which everything has to be 100% right. As that scene in um, Interstellar where there's the, the robot and the robot's got artificial intelligence and, um, and uh, they ask him, you know, what's your honesty setting? And he says 90%. And they're like, 90%? Why aren't you at 100%? It's like a, the humankind can't really handle 100% honesty. And you're like, yeah, we, we feel that. There's a sense in which that, that hits us. So when someone comes along and is always just saying the 100% truth thing, yeah, you do look fat in that. You're like, oh, you could have said that a little bit kind of more nicely. Uh, it's just annoying. It's frustrating to be around those people. And sometimes those people are doing that just to be right, just because they can, not because there's of any benefit. There's no benefit in necessarily pointing out all these things, but they just want to say everything 100% straighty 180 all the time. And it's frustrating. Well, the Bible is honest, but it's not honest just to be a pain in the backside. It's not calling out the problems in life to say, see, I told you so, I'm right, you're not, get your head in line. Although it is right, and so often I'm not. It's not doing this sort of honesty just for honesty's sake. No, in the Bible, honesty comes because there's actually something you can do about the information that's coming to you. So if someone says, you know, do I look fat in this? And you're already out. So it's not the fat one, I'll use the hair one. One of the problems... (laughs) is that with four kids, we often don't get time to look at Sarah and I as we walk out the door. And um, so often we'll be in the car on the way somewhere and Sarah will be like, did you do your hair? I'm like, I think so. And she'll be like, it doesn't look like you have. I'm like, what's the point of telling me that now? Like, I can't do it now. I've got no gel with me now. And you're like, why tell me that now? (laughs) But if you tell me when we're in the bathroom before we leave house, then I can actually do something about it. The honesty of the Bible is that second type. It's giving you some honest views of life that we can actually do something about. See, throughout Ecclesiastes, the writer's been showing us all the places we look for meaning. In wealth, in experience, in pleasure, in family, in achievement, in sex, in relationships, in comfort, in fame. And it's explored every single one of these areas and more to, the, to an extent that you and I can't. Remember, Ecclesiastes is written from the point of view of the King, of, the King, King Solomon. <laughs> the man who's been the richest, most powerful, um, most wise man that's walked the planet. Uh, and, and he's saying, I've explored all these things far more than you and all, anyone else ever could. Remember, he, he's kind of like the Bill Gates crossed with Albert Einstein, crossed with Brad Pitt, right? He's, he's got it all. It's what he's done. And he's explored all of life and he's come to these conclusions that each one of those areas is meaningless. It's futile to chase after it. It's just a, a blowing of the wind. It's vanity, mist, nothing is what he says. None of those areas will deliver. Now, he's not saying that because he's the kind of... Uh, 
I'm trying not to say engineer guy. I'm not, he, I, he's not saying that because he's the guy who always wants to be 100% right and just like blow his raspberries at everyone. He's saying it because there's actually something we can do about it. There's something that we can change in response. He's saying it not just because it's true, but because there is a way to escape the meaninglessness, that frustration that we all feel at certain times about the frustration of life. His answer isn't a wet blanket, but it's this honest view of life, which I think results in what's called risky living. So stay with me, but risky living. Let me show you what I mean. The answer to finding meaning in life comes from letting go of things, from letting go of the things that we naturally run to, we naturally hold on to, to provide meaning. What the author of Ecclesiastes is showing you is all these different areas, wealth, experience, family, pleasure, achievement, sex, comfort, relationships, fame, all these things in front of us. And he's saying, you need to let go of finding ultimate meaning in them. They will not satisfy you. None of those things will deliver what you want in life. None will give you ultimate meaning. Has any of it given you ultimate satisfaction yet? Is anyone like, I am totally happy with everything? That means you don't have a Christmas list. That means you, you're, not, you're not waking up thinking, I oh, you know it would be good. If you're anything like me, then those things are still there. And the problem with all of them is that they are robbed by death. They don't deliver. To try and find meaning in life by clutching onto those things, says this writer, your life will be meaningless, empty. We become like trapped monkeys. Now, let me explain this for a second, then I'll show a slide. So don't put a slide up yet. Um, Basically, there's a way to catch monkeys, which I think is awesome. You, you might have heard of it. It's been around for ages. I heard of it when I was quite young. Um, but basically, the way to trap a monkey is you find a box, right? A box that's kind of hollowed out, or, or sort of you could find a tree that you can hollow out kind of into the, into the um, trunk of the tree. And then you kind of put inside the box or the tree um, with this really thin hole, you put inside something that monkeys might like to have, you know, food, bananas. Apparently monkeys like bananas. And so you put one in there that, that only just the banana can fit in and only just the monkey's hand can fit in. So it's, it's quite a small hole. And what happens is the monkey then comes along, they stick their hand in the tree or the box, they grab the banana and they're stuck because they can't get out because it's on the other side of the box and they can't pull their hand out. But they will never let go of the banana. Now, I looked this up online and found videos of this. You can go and don't do it now, but check out YouTube. And you can go and see like monkeys seriously going up to trees, sticking their hand in with a guy like nearby. The monkey even watches the guy put the stuff in. He goes up to the tree, sticks his hand in, and he's there and grabs the stuff. And he's like, boom, and like, just won't let go. He's like going crazy on the side of this tree. The guy just walks up, puts like a leash around the thing and takes it off. And then finally it kind of let go when, it, when he's got it there. That's how you catch monkeys. Um, here's, here's, a, here's a clip to kind of help you. There you go. The problem is, he just won't let go. Right? There's, a, there's a sign there that they just won't let go. They won't take their hand out because they won't let go of the banana. The writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, you try to find meaning in all sorts of areas in life that won't deliver. You try to hold on to them like they'll give you what you want in life, like they'll, they'll satisfy you, but they won't, they'll kill you. They're the things holding you to the trap to death. They will go down with you and you will die and that will be the end. You'll spend your life chained to something that does not deliver. Trust me, he says. I've explored them all. The way to live in this world that makes sense with what God's Word's saying, with what we observe around us is this. It's to live in a way that's risky, that involves letting go of finding ultimate fulfillment in the things we so often chase after. It involves 
letting go of them so that you might pull your hand out of the trap called death and find something called life, which is offered to us somewhere else. Ecclesiastes stands back and provides an honest assessment of life and the things that will destroy us. It does it not just to be a wet blanket, but to say there's something you can do about it. We're all there with our hands in the trap. It's saying, let go. It's risky, but it saves us. Now, let me show you why living um, with a life with meaning involves risk. It involves risk, and we'll come back to the passage a little bit more, and then you'll kind of see how it fits together. Um, Number one, it's because a life that's lived with risk is risky because we don't know what the future is like. We don't know what the future is like. That's what chapter 11 that we didn't read out, but we kind of skipped over, is all about. Um, Chapter 11 kind of points us to life's unknowability, if you want. Uh, We'll start in um, chapter 9 and you'll start seeing it coming through. So chapter 9, verse 12, he says this, For a man does not know his time. Like fish are taken into an evil net and like birds are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. See, no one knows when their time will come. Or chapter 10, verse 14. No one knows what will happen. And who can tell anyone what will happen after him? (laughs) No one knows it. Chapter 11, verse 5. Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Now, sure, we might know some things about how bones develop. We've done research and we can see some things. But the point is, we don't know everything. There's plenty of things that we can't work out in, in science, in medicine, all sorts of theories that we've got that are our best assumptions of what's going on. We don't know why those things happen, let alone what will happen in the future. <laughs> there are still mysteries. Look at 11 verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, do not let your hand rest. Because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. What he's saying here is, there is wisdom in life lived when you recognize you don't know the future. When you recognize you can't know what's going on in life necessarily and what will happen. Do so you need to take risks. You need to take risks in life. So what do you do when you don't know the future? Some of us, we want to clam up and, and, and be safe, you know, hedge our bets and, and look at everything as much as we possibly can. But the Bible doesn't say to kind of go off and be a hermit. The Bible says we need to take risks. So when you don't know the future, we need to take risks. Have a look at um, chapter 11, verse 1. Send your bread on the surface of the waters, for after many days you may find it. What's that saying? Um, Put the thing that will sustain you, your bread, out. Um, Use your energy. Invest in kind of things that are going on, and, and after many days they may come back. You don't know, but it's worth taking the risk. Take a risk. 11 verse 2, give a portion to seven or to eight, for you don't know what disaster may happen on earth. In other words, you don't know what will happen in the future, so give some to to other people. Share what you have. Give a portion to them, uh, because you don't know when the end will come. And if you've got all these massive things stored up and other people are going without, then and the end comes, then it was just a waste. Invest in a number of things. You don't know. We have to live lives in a way that's risky. Look at verse um, 3, and you'll see this is the repeated theme through this whole section. If the clouds are full, they will pour out rain on the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or the north, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. 
What's it saying in poetic language? Uh, uh, engineers are getting a bashing this morning. I love engineers. Welcome. Um, but if you're, if you're one of the, those people who has everything lined up, I want this to exactly tell me what it's saying about life. It's not the way that the teacher's writing. He's painting pictures. You, you, the tree might fall. You don't know where it's going to fall. Like, why doesn't it just say, you don't know where the tree's going to fall in life, so take risks? Because he, he, he paints with word pictures. He's saying, you don't know what will happen here. You, you can't choose what will happen in the future, so you need to live a life that takes risks. Look at verse 6 of chapter 11, and you'll see that very clearly. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, do not let your hand rest. Because you don't know which will succeed, whether one or the other, or if both of them will be equally good. What's this saying? Remember, this is just general view of the world, wisdom in how we live. What the Bible is saying to us is we need to step out and try things. Christians shouldn't be people that kind of sit quietly on a rocking chair at home and and, and just read the Bible. We should sit and read the Bible. Absolutely. This is God speaking to us. But when we do that, the word sends us out to take risks in the world around us. The problem is highlighted in verse 4. One who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. Do you see the punchline there? You could watch the wind all day and be like, when's the best time? I'm going to wait for the wind. When's the best time to go? Have you ever been fishing? That's what you, you got to look up these charts for tide charts, and there's this app you can get with the wind, and, where, and you try and pick this time, and every time I've gone, it hasn't resulted in anything. Uh, you just like, oh, you just don't know. You could sit at home like I did for a day, thinking, oh, I'm just, I'm still, I think I spent about an hour trying to work out the best time to go fishing. Like, you can do that all day. You can do that with life. You can sit in, in, in your kind of, in your current life and never step outside. Never actually go, I, I want to take risks. See, We need to take risks though, don't we? Like no one can actually live life without taking risks. How did Sarah know that I would be a good husband? She didn't. There was some kind of evidence of stupidity beforehand and and some of of good things. You're like, hey, there's something great about Rowan. Uh, We we, we started dating at 16. We were married at 20. Uh, That's kind of 14 years have gone past, nearly 15 and you're like, has she been right? Well, sometimes I'm afraid to ask for honesty in that area, right? But how did she know? She, she didn't know. The accountant in her had to just go, well, I've got to take a risk. And she did. And I'm thankful. I have to ask her later if she is. Um, we don't have a crystal ball on life. And you take risks all the time. We have to. You drove or walked or bust or somehow arrived here today, unless you slept in the cinema chat to me about how you did that later that sounds pretty cool but um you somehow got got here how did you know the people on the road weren't going to crash into you how did you know that they were actually skilled drivers you don't they they could be lunatics um and they might just you know you have to live with risk and what this part of the bible is saying is just look at the world this is how we need to live and i think that's what we need to do as a church at this point there's an application here for us as Christians to, to not just go, ah, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to stick to my normal way of thinking, but to take risks in all sorts of areas. Risks with our friends, with our family, to, to stand up publicly and to say, I think Jesus is the center of who I am. He's the center of the universe and I want to follow him. That's risky. 
Why are people taking that risk? Well, we'll come to it in a minute. But as a church, we need to think about stepping outside our boundaries, thinking about how we can keep seeing people come to know Jesus. Uh, we might, you know, we're going to keep doing that as a church. And you know what? It might all go wrong. We might make mistakes as a church and we might be like, oh, this, this hasn't been brilliant. This wasn't the best thing to do. And, but we must not let that stop us because we can't know. God hasn't kind of written in um, neon lights on the wall. This is exactly the next steps you need to take Auckland Evangelical Church to do these things. We, we can't know those. So I've spent a large portion of the last three weeks looking at a potential building for us as a church. Uh, a fantastic building that would work really well for the future. Um, I've kind of learned a whole heap of stuff about what to do. I've bounced it off other experts and other people that were around. And it seemed like a possibility, and then everything was just all too fast. The day that the day that the, 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 was a tender offer that could have gone in, I couldn't see any way about how we could get this thing to happen. The day it happens, someone tells me that they and, and their organization, they're Christians, was looking at buying a, a building in the same area that would have fitted us perfectly next door, and they had the money ready to go. And I'm like, no, how is this possible? Like, they could just, it could have just worked all perfectly. So I ring them, and they're like, oh, this sounds like the perfect building. This sounds brilliant. Um, I'm like, but we need to get the money in by 4 p.m. today. <laughs> Who can do that? And so you take risks, you spend time, you look at opportunities for growth, but they won't always pay off. Because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what to do. It does give us a picture of the future, but it doesn't give us a crystal ball for every decision. God does lay some things out about the future, and that's the brilliance of, of this book that's in your hands. There's things in here that God is telling us that are true about what happens after death, about that there is life after death, that everyone will come before the true and living God. It tells us about events that have happened in the past that are true and that... that change the way we live in the future that jesus is god that he has died in our place those things dramatically change the way we live but whether we buy a building down the road or how we kind of when we put on staff or or how i operate and who i speak to when i'm down the street about who jesus is or what job i there's there's no real wisdom or clarity no real clear guidance in any of those areas and i actually think that's a good thing Because it pushes us to be humble. It pushes us to come before the God who is in control of all things and pray to Him and trust Him. That's the thing that the Bible keeps telling us over and over and over. You might not know everything, but God does. And He's in control of everything. You can't control, I can't control hardly anything in life, but God is in control of everything. And so trust Him. Take Him at His word. Take risks. Recognize we don't know the future, but that God does. And this whole kind of view that Ecclesiastes 11 is talking about has huge implications for us on the topic of, of guidance. How do I work out how to live? I hear people often saying, look, I'm seeking the Lord's leading in life. I want God to kind of guide me in what to do. And you're like, well, in what? And often as you talk to people who are asking those questions, it's in the, the big decisions of life. The question I want to ask is, what's a big decision? What are the big decisions of life? You know, the ones that we rattle through quite quickly. Where, where do I work? What, what job do I take? Where do I live? Uh, do I marry? Uh, do I marry that person? <laughs> um, uh, or, or things like, um, should I invest all my money in this thing? <laughs> you know, I want to ask God's wisdom in this. Uh, they're the big decisions in life, but the problem is we don't know which decisions are big and which ones aren't. 
We don't know it all. Uh, my grandfather was feeling pretty good. At 45, went to have a lie down. And that lying down, he died in his sleep. 45. Now, if he'd stayed up, maybe he wouldn't have had that heart attack. Maybe he could have gone to a doctor. That decision just to take a nap that day, which is a good thing, had dramatic implications for my whole family, for the way I am, the, the, the way that my dad parented and what, what being a dad meant to my dad because he didn't really grow up with a dad. The big decisions, we don't know what they are. Well, at the end of this talk, I want to show you that there is one that we do know. There is one area of clarity that, well, the writer of Ecclesiastes is pointing out these truths about risky living so that we might see. But you must hear this very clearly. We've got to have humility, don't we? We can't know the future. Every choice we take is a risk. We might seek to minimize the risk. I think that's right. Uh, We might ask God to help us to give us wisdom. But if we always want God to line everything up for us, nowhere in the Bible does he promise to do that. He says, I've, I've done the big things. Jesus died in your place. You want to know how to live? Live. Make decisions to put me at the center because I'm the king of the universe and I love you. But in terms of what car to buy, what job to take, well, there's guidance and wisdom, but God is not going to, then never promises to step out and say, this is what you must do. I don't say that anywhere in scripture. It's obsessive to seek after no risk. Don't be that person. But it's also foolish to never consider the risks of life. And so what we want to do as people who are taking the wisdom of this 3,000-year-old book is to stand back and say, taking risks is something we need to do. We need to take risks that are molded by the shape of the Bible. Risks that are molded by seeing the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. But we need to take risks if we're to bear fruit in life. Well, the second observation of these two chapters uh, is really an honest observation about life. The first observation is to take risks uh, because we can't know the future. The second observation of the passage is that all throughout life we have warning signs of its end. That death is the end of a process that has started the day we were born. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 1. So remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come, and the years approach when you'll say, I've got no delight in them. The whole of verses 1 to 8, that bit that we read earlier together, is this piece of poetry pointing to one fact, and that's this. Every single person is approaching death every second of their day. That's the reality. That's the honest truth. (laughs) Look at um, verses 2 to 4 and think picture language. What's this talking about, about death and humanity? Before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind cease because they are few and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors in the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. When one rises at the sound of a bird, all the daughters of song grow faint. What's it saying? It took me a while too to kind of understand what's going on here. I think it's saying in a pictorial language, this is life dimming as you get older. The lights and the moon darken. Joy can seep out of your life. Now I hear some people saying, you know, no, no, getting old's good. Like I'm happy, but there's a sense in which they walk a little bit differently. 
And they see kind of every year they seem to, as you get older, collect a different specialist. And they just kind of keep coming along that way because we, we are breaking down. There's a joy that can seep out. You know, returning clouds, I think, is imagery of, of, of sorrow. Uh, maybe it's just a picture of the reason why the, the lights are darkened and the moon and stars have disappeared is because their eyesight's failing. Maybe that's the kind of picture that's on here. Um, the guardians of the house, you know, who, I think it's, it's talking symbolically about arms of a person, the, the strong men, the legs. Um, it's this picture of, of, of frailty, the grinders. Um, one commentator says this is talking about teeth, the grinders, that their teeth are falling out. The grinders are disappearing. You're like, really? You kind of see this language. It starts to make sense about in the context of the whole lot that's going on. Um, actually, in verse 4, there's, there's an interesting word. When one rises, it says, at the sound of a bird. Uh, now, the word one is actually when men rise at the sound of a bird. And it got me thinking, uh, a friend of mine pointed this out to me, that um, maybe there's a, there's a specific reason that it's men. I'm like, what gets men up uh, to the sound of birds? Often it's prostate problems, isn't it? It's, it's bladder issues that men seem to have as they get older. Maybe that's what it's talking about here. Um, maybe that's why it's significant. Uh, you, look, you look from the rest of it, from 12 verse 5 onwards. I don't think it's on the screen. Uh, they're afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms. Do you know almond trees blossom white? What's it talking about? Hair, I think. Uh, the grasshopper loses its spring. You don't walk the same anymore. You haven't got that same bounce. The caper berry has no effect. The caper berry is actually a berry that um, helps you to be hungry. It gives you desire to eat. It's saying you're not hungry anymore. You've got no spring in your step. And here's the punchline. For man is headed to his eternal home. And mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken. What's that? Life itself is cut off. The core of life is snapped and the bowl that is life is broken and shattered and the well of life is kind of all imploding in of itself. What I'm saying is there's a progressive nature, not a sudden nature generally to death, but a progressive nature. Now, most of us, it's that progressiveness that leads us to death. What I'm saying is there are all these warning signs that are here, warning signs that this writer of Ecclesiastes is pointing out with the honest truth to say, there's something you can do about this. But you need to take risks. You need to let go of the things that you think will give you fulfillment and satisfaction. In chapter 12, verse 11, that we'll look at next week, uh, but it says this, it helps you to understand what he's doing, this writer of Ecclesiastes. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd. What's a goad? It's, it's the prodder that a shepherd has to make the sheep move. It's the kind of the jabbing stick to go, get in line. What's he saying? What I've written to you is a jabbing stick. It's a little hint of honesty about the world around you, about why you live and what you're doing to say it will not satisfy. Look, I've been there. I've done it. These are words of the wise. And if we cling to the false reality that these things that we seek, happiness and wealth and, and pleasure and, and relationships, we think they will ultimately fulfill us. We're holding on to the wrong things. We're clinging to a wreckage that's sinking. Be, prompt, be prompted and poked by these words. What we see then is the answer laid out for us. And we'll come back next week and look at this in lots of detail, but I want to flag it now to kind of pull things together. Chapter 12, verse 13, it's on the screen. 
Uh, and it says this. There it is. Oh. Um, for the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. That is the answer. That is the thing that we need to know about the future. For all things will be judged by the one who made us. That's the claim of this 3,000-year-old piece of literature. It's the claim that Jesus made. It's the claim that saw the early church people come and give up their lives to follow Jesus. They recognized that God was this man, Jesus, and there would be a judgment after death. Death is not the end. Solomon has been saying here in Ecclesiastes that if, if, if this is all there is, life's not worth living. But now at the very end, he gives us this answer. There is something worth living for. Because there is life after death. What takes away the meaning from life? I think two things. A lack of purpose and a lack of permanence. Purpose in that if death's the end, what's the point of life? But here you see the answer to that. There is a point of life. Death is not the end. There is an eternity at at stake for every single person. And then permanence. My deeds will not disappear. They are weighed by God. Everything I do will come before him. Everything I've said and done and the way I've lived will be judged by this God. And so there we find ourselves in the position of thinking through how we live a significant life. We have the answer, and it's this. Take risks. Stop holding on to things that you think will save you in the world that don't deliver. They're not going to deliver. And come to the one who will judge everything and trust in him. See that Jesus has died in your place and that he has risen and offered life. And come and look at the effects of what he has done for us. Suddenly when we see that, the way that we live matters. We start to rearrange life, not about getting the most out of it, getting the most goodies out of the kind of banana bin, but start recognizing that there's something more than bananas on offer. There's an eternity with God. And so it helps us to rearrange our lives then, recognizing who Jesus is and what he's done. Recognizing how we live does matter. Fear God. Not be afraid as in like just run away from him. But recognize he is God. He sees everything in your life. And he's provided the solution to those times that you and I haven't treated him as we should. When you understand the purpose and permanence of life is to come before our God. And it changes the way you live. It suddenly gives you meaning. (laughs) <laughs> that, that my actions can last for eternity, that as people come and trust Jesus, they might know him. That as I live as someone who has got God as my king, that I live in, in his way, I'm pleasing him, not in order to be saved, not so I could be good enough for him. No, no, no. No one can be good enough for God, but because he's offered the price for me, because he's paid the price already. Therefore, life has meaning in the way we work, whether we're a stay-at-home mom or we work in a library, or we, we do all sorts of different jobs. How do we live? Well, not trying to find fulfillment in who I am as a librarian, or as a mum, or as a, a doctor, or a speech pathologist, or a teacher, or a salesperson. That, that doesn't define me. What defines me? Recognizing that I live 
for God. Recognizing that Jesus has died in my place and I want to be pleasing him because I'm saved by him. Meaning comes in life when our purpose and our permanence is solved. And so the question for us today is, will you take the risk? Will you take the risk to check out Jesus, maybe for the first time? Maybe for the second time, and actually say, I've been toying around with this for a while. I've, I've looked at the evidence, but oh, I, I don't really think it's true. You're risking your life that it's not. What are you holding on to instead? What's got you in that, what the Bible would call a trap? Maybe you have trusted Jesus, but you're just not willing to speak up, to talk, to act in such a way that you're living with him as the king of all your life. You're afraid of what others think. They're saying, do you see what matters? It's to come before the judge of all things and say, I live to serve you because of what Jesus has done for me. Will you take risks to let go of the things that we think provide meaning? And to trust in the God who has given us life and hope forever. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this word from Ecclesiastes. For the pictures that it paints as a whole book about what matters in life. And we ask that as we think through what matters the most, that we would see clearly what you've done for us in your son. That we might be able to understand what an amazing privilege it is to know you. We ask that you, through the eyes of this teacher in Ecclesiastes, to see the world as it really is, to see what things don't deliver what they promise, and to see the life that is offered in Jesus. Father God, I pray for all of us here that we would take risks, not relying on ourselves, but humbly coming to you, the one who, in your son, came and died in our place that we might be forgiven so that we might call you our dad and we might look forward to an eternity forever, forgiven. Lord, we pray that would change the way we live to a life with meaning in all we do. We pray this in his great name. Amen.